0: We'll
1: Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A list writers that were sold and developed in networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I am Andrew Reich, the creator and co host of Dead Pilot Society. First of all, thank you to everyone who contributed during the Max Fun Drive, everyone who renewed or upgraded their membership. It means so much to us. You're what keeps us going, keeps us doing this. So thank you. Uh, and thank you to everyone who tuned into the finale show for The Drive, where I'm sure I confused everyone by talking about New Jersey hardcore punk seven inches. It, it was it was fun for me, so whatever. Uh, how is everybody out there doing? Maybe, maybe it's a good day, maybe a not-so-good one. Uh, I'm not working. Um, uh, I'm not employed at the moment, and uh, maybe you're like me. Maybe you've been waking up lately with that terrible feeling of i'm never going to work again uh i'm here to tell you that if you are having those feelings whether you're a writer or or not you're definitely not alone um and let me tell you this you will work again every single one of you except you uh you know who i'm talking about so other than um some recreational existential despair what else have i been thinking about um you know, in the endless film festival with my wife and uh, two kids that has been this pandemic, we, we recently watched first Peter Bogdanovich's What's Up, Doc, and then the movie that inspired that, which is Howard Hawks' Bringing Up Baby. Now, I had never seen What's Up, Doc, and I loved it. I had seen Bringing Up Baby, and it never did much for me. As much as I love most of Howard Hawks' films, especially Only Angels Have Wings and His Girl Friday, um, I never never quite got Bringing Up Baby, but I really thought it was funny this time. Um, And then I listened to this archival recording of Peter Bogdanovich interviewing Howard Hawks, and in it, Hawks says that he felt... Bringing a baby was, was really a deeply flawed film because there was not a sane character in the film to give you a measure of the other character's insanity. Uh, and it just, it made me realize I was actually about to make the same mistake with something I was working on. So, you know, it's just always good to check in with the old masters from time to time. On to our dead pilot for this month This was our second Zoom reading Uh, The pilot is most likely by Gloria Calderon Kellett Gloria is of course best known as the co-creator and co-showrunner of One Day at a Time on Netflix and now Pop TV Gloria is a real force Um, She's been doing incredible work on Twitter Getting writers from underrepresented groups connected with agents and managers and showrunners She's just a fantastic person, and we had a great conversation. So definitely stick around after the pilot reading to hear my interview with her. Uh, our cast for this was Anna Villafañe uh, from New Amsterdam as Stella Cortez, Victor Raski from uh, Fifty Shades Freed and Lords of Dogtown as Mateo Grayson, Emily Chang from The Vampire Diaries and The Bold Type as Arlo Lamb, Tyler Ritter from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the McCarthys as Atticus Anders, Caitlin McGee from Bluff City Law and Modern Love as Nora Asher, Todd Grinnell from One Day at a Time, Schneider from One Day at a Time as Mr. Frost, Taryn Killam from SNL and Single Parents as Tucker Zane, and finally Gloria Calderon Kellett as Woman. So that was our cast. Uh, Here you go. Here is most likely after a brief message.
0: every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital doer of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head.
1: So without further ado, we bring you most likely the pilot episode, The Letters by Gloria Calderon Kellett. We begin with a series of talking head confessionals where the actors directly address the camera. Stella Cortez, Latina, 28, strong, focused, suffers no fools, sits in a chair staring at the camera. The hair, makeup and outfit make one think she's effortless, but there was effort, a great deal of it.
3: So, I was home <laughs> for Sunday brunch and yes, my dad still likes that we do Sunday brunch. After church, um He attends St. Mary's on the corner and I attend the imaginary one that I tell him I go to. I should probably just say, dad, I'm a grown ass woman and I don't go to church anymore. (laughs) Deal with it. I mean, I still love Jesus. I'm just not down with the patriarchy. So, Um, but this isn't about that. Uh, Sorry. So that's when he handed me my, my letter.
1: She holds up a letter addressed to Stella Cortez. It has way too much postage on it and is decorated with hearts and stars. We go to Mateo Grayson, Latino, 28. He is the former football player that you had a severe crush on in high school. But now he's older and hotter. It's annoying. I forgot about the letters, to be honest.
4: But once I saw mine, it all came back. Our English teacher, Mr. Frost, had us write these letters to our future selves. I was popular and people who like to pretend, act all humble when they say that, but popular people know we're popular. In fact, I remember right, right when my letter starts out. What's up, rock star?" <laughs> so embarrassing, obviously. I should've put, what's up, rapper? Anyway, those are the good times, the best.
1: We go to Arlo Lamb, 28, Asian American. Arlo can apply a perfect cat eye in under a minute. She's cool, chill, and blunt, deal.
5: High school sucked we couldn't leave campus for lunch and there was a chipotle across the street like aggressively staring at me but i did love mr frost and i remember writing my letter it was all about how i wanted to be a filmmaker the next spielberg but like the female asian version but um instead i i shoot youtube videos of myself doing makeup tutorials, which when you say it sounds like total BS, but I have 200,000 followers and growing click, like, and subscribe. Well, I remember Mr. Frost had us put our parents address in the letter and he said he'd nail them in 10 years when we were 28.
1: We go to Atticus Anders, 28, cuter than he thinks he is. Boy next door with a sardonic wit that gives him an edge. He continues.
6: Yeah. My parents moved a lot. They were in the army, the, Kiss Army, like the band. Yeah. So I didn't get my letter because they don't live there anymore. And I have no memory of what my actual letter said. I was kind of the class clown, which is how I got Nora. I mean, she could have had her pick, but I could make her laugh. And, And there is nothing better than the sound of her laugh. And I did write a little, um, I love you Nora note in her letter. So there's that. Um, we were voted most likely to get married, which we did.
1: And we go to Nora Asher, 28. The girl you see on the first day of school and determined will be your best friend.
2: I remember I spritzed perfume on it. dk one <laughs> Oh gosh, okay, that's <laughs> strong. It had just come out and it was unisex, which was perfect because I was bisexual. I had just come out. Well, just to myself because I hadn't told my boyfriend I would eventually.
1: Stella continues.
3: Uh, 28 seemed so old back then. But now that I am 28, uh, it's like my whole life is still ahead of me. Right? Right?
1: The screen then splits into five, so we see all of our main characters, and off of their hopeful looks, we end the cold open. Act one. Stella tends bar at the very cool Books and Beers microbrewery. Arlo enters with her own letter in hand. Stella clocks it. Give it! The two immediately swap letters and begin reading.
3: Aww! You said you'd hope we'd still be besties. Aww! What? I'm at the part where you hope to make films about people who look like you. Which on good
5: days is Constance Wu, and uh, on bad days is Masazo Nanaka. That, that's the oldest man in the world. Although, you know, age and don't raise
3: Oh, trust, I know. <laughs> brown don't frown. I like a good people of color don't age rhyme. We have a lot going for us. Oh, hey, you said you wanted to
5: run a successful business, and you do. Check.
3: Uh, I wanted to run my own successful business. I run a bar owned by an old drunk named Jimbo who drinks so much he doesn't even remember he owns a bar.
5: Yeah, but you made it cool. Yelp says it's the most lit bar in town.
3: Mm, that was your review and you only gave us four stars.
5: Yeah, sometimes the staff can be a little whiny.
3: Hey, yeah. Uh, I just thought I'd be further along. Okay, 10 years seems like... Such a long time, but it blew.
5: It's not that long. Have you seen those 10-year challenges on Insta? No one has aged. I mean, pretty sure the last 10 years have not happened. I totally forgot. You were crushing hard on Matteo Grayson. Is it weird that we're
3: hanging out with him again?
1: Stella takes the letter out of Arlo's hand.
3: Right. So dumb. Whatever. I mean, when Atticus brought him around last month, I was like, wow.
5: Yeah, because he's super hot. Now him, I would give five stars to.
3: Mm, Yeah, but then he opens his mouth. There's that. Yeah, I was more like, wow, because it's been years and that man has not changed. I mean, the very point of traveling is to grow and I don't feel he has. Well,
5: he's changed a little because in high school, he didn't talk to us. And now he does. He talked to me. He waved at you once in the hall. And I still think he might have just been shooing a mosquito.
3: Okay, can we not talk about Matteo
5: Grayson? Ah, yeah, let's please talk about me. Do you think 18-year-old me would be disappointed that I'm not making movies?
3: Okay, are you kidding? You're on your way to being an internet superstar, and movies aren't a thing anymore. <laughs> now you're trying too hard. The 18-year-old you would be impressed. Impressed as hell that you have an apartment, a rock star boyfriend, and you can afford to buy things at Anthropology for full price.
5: Not true. I am no chump. I always wait for sales. I'm dying to see if anyone else got theirs.
1: Arlo grabs her phone and types. A text appears on screen. Did you get your letter? Are you freaking? Arlo sends it to Nora, and it appears. We're Nora in Atticus's apartment. On Nora's phone, Nora picks up the phone and reads. She sits on a couch with her legs on Atticus. The two look very much the old married couple.
2: Oh, Arlo got her letter.
6: No, oh, at least she got hers. She was kind of bumming me out that I didn't get mine, like... What did little Atticus have to say to present-day me? Yeah, I remember
2: him well, and he just really wanted to have sex with me.
6: Yeah.
2: Thanks for that. Up top. Hey, you always brought your A-game, bro. Double up top.
1: (laughs) Boom. The two clearly adore each other.
6: (laughs) Do you uh, sometimes feel like we failed us?
2: No. No, we shared great times together, and we... We loved each other as much as two kids could. I think it's mature that we ended things the way that we did. We're, we're better off as friends.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: And now we're a uh, sexy divorcees.
6: You're a sexy divorcee. I'm a guy with a dad bod who's not yet a dad. <laughs>
2: hey, you know what 28-year-old divorced dad bod says to women?
6: To run the other way?
2: No. No, it tells them that you can commit.
6: Really? Yeah. Thank God. Okay. I'm canceling my gym membership.
1: (laughs) Nora's phone buzzes again. Another text from Arlo.
6: Atticus addresses the camera. I've been friend zoned by my wife, ex-wife, even though by her own words, I'm very good at sex.
1: Nora addresses camera.
6: It was never about the sex.
2: It wasn't. We were just, we were too young to make such a huge permanent decision. You can't just grab the first wonderful person you meet and marry them. Right?
1: And we're back in Nora and Atticus's apartment. The text, come to the bar. We're going to f- read our letters and drink. Atticus types of text that we see. Heading to books and beers with the gang to hear high school letters. You get yours? And we go to Mateo's bachelor pad. His phone buzzes. He's uh, busy getting busy. Once post-sex, he falls back on his bed and reaches for the phone wow he reads the text and then turns to the woman how'd it go beautiful Try needs me
6: you're
7: such a sweetheart
4: let me call you let me call you lift
1: my treat
7: um thank you <laughs>
1: Mateo texts back. The text says, be there in 10. At Books and Beers later that night, Stella, Arlo, Atticus, Nora, and Mateo all sit in the bar. Arlo addresses Atticus.
5: Honestly, you're probably better off not getting your letter. I thought mine would be so fun to read, but it kind of made me feel weird. Like, what am I doing? I put on makeup every day for tons of people. What is that? Hmm, that's finding
3: something you love and getting paid to do it?
5: But should I be doing something bigger than teaching
6: the difference between strobing and contouring? Should I know what those are? And let's just say it, 30s around the corner. This is the wake-up call that says, get your shit together. You have two years. Why did I cancel my gym membership?
4: (laughs) You guys, 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 you guys need to chill. There is no to-do list that you have to get done by 30 or else you failed.
3: Uh, sure, there is. You go to school, you get married, you have kids, and the cycle starts again. There's a total normal roadmap of what we're supposed to do.
4: What, roadmaps are for our parents. We're the ways generation. We know there. We know that there are. We know that there
6: are other better ways to go. No, but always wants me to go left when I can't go left. Is that a metaphor for my life?
2: Oh, maybe it is because I did everything right. And now I'm a divorced bisexual who spent the last two years still living with her ex. Like, should I try mushrooms? Whoa, no. Well, if there's a roadmap for what to do next, believe me, I want it. Better yet, just just drop a pin so that I can Google Maps my way there and beat traffic. Or maybe I should
6: off-road this bitch. Okay, really doubling down on that roadmap analogy.
2: Okay, well.
1: Mateo turns to Nora. You're bi. Uh-uh. Don't be
2: cool.
1: gross. Yep. But, <laughs> nope.
4: Dude, dude. Did you and her ever add a Nope. Any chance you can still Nope,
6: already asked many times.
5: I just feel like I wanna use my powers for good, not just to cover blemishes and make people look lit from within.
1: Just then, Mr. Frost, hot hipstery in early forties, enters. Good afternoon, class. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What
2: What is happening?
1: They all get up and hug and high five their old teacher.
2: (laughs) What are you doing here?
1: Well, I ran into Stella at the pharmacy. She was
0: buying aspirin and I was buying everything else because I'm old. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm not that much older than you guys. A little. Yeah. We're basically peers now. Who cares? Right.
3: (laughs) Don't be weird, Mr. Frost.
0: Right. Anyway, uh, Stella mentioned you guys got the letters and we're meeting up tonight. So I thought I'd hop by. It's so crazy seeing you. What a trip. Well, are, are you guys waiting on anyone? Katie Foley, Hunter Earl?
2: Oh, no. We kind of drifted from, from them.
1: Interesting. I didn't, uh, didn't anticipate
0: that.
3: Yep. The
1: gang, the gang isn't sure what to make of this remark.
3: This is the gang.
0: Plus Mateo.
1: Mateo gives Stella a look. She gives him a playful wink.
4: So uh, how did the letters hit you guys? Well, 18 year old me
1: knew what was up. He shows his letter to Mr. Frost and points out things.
4: Sweet ass apartment? Check. Job with flexible hours that I can crush? Check.
3: Uh, He's a salesman at a dealership that his dad owns.
4: So? Yeah, my dad owns it, but I sold three Kia Optimus this week alone. So why the shade, Stella? Yeah, Stella, why the shade? Again, I'm old Am I even using
3: that right? You're not that old But you do have some pudding on your cardigan And I really hope that's pudding
0: He brushes it off then So, uh, what are you doing now, Nora?
2: Oh, well, uh, I became a teacher Like you Well, I teach fifth grade So lots of kids just on the brink of puberty Like right before they turn into assholes So I
0: love it I love that you became a teacher
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I had a good role model
0: Wow. Marlo, what about you? Where are you working these days?
5: Well, um, I'm a social influencer, which sounds cool, but really means that I, I influence women to try a bolder brow. Should I be doing more? I, I feel like I should be doing more. The letter is messing with me. I'm not going to lie.
0: Well, that, that's good. It's forcing you to dig deep and ask yourself questions now so you can change the course of your lives. That's that's what I'd hope they would do.
6: So I didn't get my letter, but the Armenian family that bought my childhood home is probably laughing at my penmanship right now.
0: Uh, Sorry to hear that, buddy.
6: Yeah, it's a bummer because for whatever reason, I feel like I needed to read it. You know, don't let the others know, but um, 2020 Atticus isn't exactly lighting the world on fire. Hell, he can barely get the burner to start. You know, maybe young me would have had some insight into helping me now.
0: Well, you don't need a physical letter to take a look at who you are and what you want to change. There's something in your life that you want. It's time to make it happen. If not now, then when? You know, you really cr- know how to crush a pep
6: talk? I mean, you still want it, <laughs> Mr. Frost.
0: Oh, thanks, Atticus. Uh, but we're contemporaries now. Call me James. No.
2: Oh, uh, sorry. Sorry. No, not gonna. not gonna do that.
0: Okay. 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 I get it. I get it. You know, you guys were my first class. My first real time as a teacher. I was only 24 myself at the time.
2: Well, what's the last decade been like for
3: you?
0: Uh, still teaching. I did write a book and uh, got some nice reviews.
3: Oh, it's called way back then. And it's great. I read it on
1: Audible. Stella smiles. Just then, Arlo's boyfriend, Tucker Zane, early thirties, one part Jonas brother, one part guy that works in a hippie coffee shop, enters. There's my girl.
6: <laughs>
1: Arlo melts. He walks over and plants a kiss on her. Hey guys. Hi, I'm James.
5: He's our old English teacher.
1: Weird.
4: Yeah, I get that.
5: Tucker is in a band Pie, arson.
4: Mm -hmm. Pie like apple pie?
1: Yeah, and arson like the criminal act of setting fire to property because like we're sweet, but our music is going to set the world on fire. Mateo laughs.
4: Everyone looks at him. (laughs) Uh, You're you're saying that unironically?
3: They're really good. They just got a song on that CW show about the angel witches
4: with superpowers. (laughs) Sounds right. Congrats.
6: He managed to find a way to rhyme world and absurd. This guy's awesome.
1: Oh, thanks, brother. Anyway, hey, I wish I could stay, but I was going to see if I could borrow your car because I got to go lay down some tracks and mine's acting up.
5: Oh, I thought we were going to hang.
1: Yay. Rain check for tomorrow. Some solid you and me time. I actually want to talk to you about something kind of huge.
5: Okay. I'll block you out.
1: (laughs) Tucker and Arlo head out. Mateo turns to the group. We hate him, right?
4: No, he's all right. Really? Because he's wearing a wool hat and it's 75 degrees out.
3: Continually impressed by your I don't care what people think attitude. He's completely self-made. Not everyone has had everything handed to them.
4: Dang, Stella, why are you being so hard on me? Yeah, Stella, why are you being so hard on him?
1: Stella shoots Mr. Frost a look, and he backs down.
3: Has living abroad made you soft?
1: Has staying in one place made you mean? She can't help but smile. She's not often called out. Oh,
4: did you just move back to town? Yeah. What started off What started off as a business trip turned into a few years living in Europe. But believe it or not, I got homesick. And now that I'm back, I'm reminded that there's a lot of great stuff here that maybe I didn't notice before.
1: He looks at Stella, who suddenly gets uncomfortable. Well, uh, well, welcome home.
4: Look, I I know I'm new to the group, but I'm just trying to warn your girl because that guy is clearly an asshole. I know the game and game recognizes game.
3: Oh, so you admit you're an asshole.
4: No, I just know when someone is serious, which is why she needs to drop that loser because he's not that serious.
6: Okay. I mean, the goal is to find a person to spend your life with. Even if it's some sort of weird sexless postmarital quasi relationship, right?
1: He lifts his glass and Nora clinks it. It's clear. These two are comfortable with their situation.
4: I just have no desire to spend my life with one person. I don't even want to spend the night with only one person. I shower in between. I mean, see, Where players get a bad rap is when you pretend not to be players, like that Tucker guy. All of the women I spend time with know what I'm about. I'm very clear.
3: Yeah, no, that's like saying, I'm a really nice robber. I say, hi, I'm here to rob you. Please give me your money. Your honesty doesn't exonerate you from being selfish and terrible.
4: Except in my case, trust me, they want to be robbed and watch the security footage again later. Gag. If they're into that, yeah, sure.
2: Villa. You know, Matteo, I don't, I don't think you're selfish.
4: Thank you, Nora.
2: Yeah, a little sad behind the eyes, emotionally stunted, and filled with secret self-loathing. Sure, but generally super fun to be around. So, <laughs>
4: <sighs> thank you. Look, all I'm saying is that Tucker dude—he's pretending to be a relationship guy, but he's not. I'm telling you,
1: Arlo returns.
5: How great is he? He's
1: great. He's so great. <laughs> Stella gives Matteo a knowing look.
5: I think he's going to ask me to go on the road with him. And maybe I can shoot the tour. Show the life of the rocker's girlfriend on the road. There you go. Touring with a band? Come on. How epic is that? Yeah, and I'd be doing something for my letter that I can fulfill for 18-year-old me.
4: Sex on a moving bus?
5: No, shooting something
3: important.
4: Stella, <laughs> Stella, ignoring Matej.
0: <laughs>
3: Sweetie, that is such a cool idea.
4: Agreed. Very, very cool, Arlo. So Arlo and I have shared our letters. Who is next?
2: Uh, I'll go. OK. Um, I mean, I wanted to be a teacher. Check. And I wanted to marry Atticus. Check.
6: And uncheck. We're divorced. We're fine. I'm right. fine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, and I oh, well, I hope to kiss a girl before graduation, but I never did, but now I can. So that's, you know
6: something sure <laughs> is I can do. You know what? Uh, I'm glad you all got your letters and that we're here talking about what we want. I mean, we should talk about the big stuff. It's important. We, we get caught up in the minutiae of our day today and suddenly, bam, it's been two years and you haven't had sex because you're still living with your ex. <laughs> Preach! So, uh, you know, on that note, I'm inspired to make a big move in my life. Ooh, you're going to grow some facial hair? No. Wait, should I? No. <laughs> I'm gonna move out. You are? Yeah. I mean, it's weird living with your ex-wife, right?
2: I don't know, is it? Or maybe... Okay, it is.
3: Yeah. Honestly, I think that's probably a great idea. Okay, yeah, Abs- for sure. I think it's great,
2: too. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
6: Well,
0: this is exciting. Everyone's making big moves. Now, who wants a drink? I'll
1: They all raise their hands. Mateo raises both of his hands. I'll grab them. I'll help. He follows her to the bar.
3: I cannot believe you showed up here.
0: What? I wanted to see everyone.
3: Ah, uh, Sure you did. Are you going to tell them the truth?
0: I can't tell them right now.
3: Okay. I'll keep it a secret, Mr. Frost. For now.
1: Off of our gang, all inspired to take life by the cojones, we end act one. Act two, we're still in books and beers. Arlo and Nora sit at the bar as Stella closes. Everyone else is gone.
2: Ross is cute. Totally. I noticed some gray and I did not hate it, right? I am feeling excited. Dare I say fired up? I, I am fired up
3: i am fired up too
2: yeah i mean i'm exhausted from teaching all day um and having my life situation completely change as of an hour ago but also fired up okay wait how do
3: you really feel about atticus moving out
2: i mean i'm i'm okay i i knew this would happen eventually i mean you guys know we became more like brother and sister than husband and wife and I just, I loved living with him. And at first it felt right, you know, easing into the divorce, but also solo rent is so expensive and moving sucks. And two years went by just like that. I, I mean, I'll, I'll miss him for sure. And I'll miss, you know, our taco Tuesdays and lasagna Thursdays and flout of Fridays. And yeah. you can still eat. No, I know. I just like eating with him and I still love him. I love Being in the same room as him, and he's always so happy when I walk through the door, and he's such a good little spoon. You sound like you're talking about a dog. Oh, wow. Okay. You're right. So maybe this is a good thing for both of us. Mm. Good attitude.
3: (laughs) Harlow, how about you? You keep waiting for Tucker to ask you to do things that you clearly want to do. So how about you don't wait to be asked? Who are you right now? Because
5: I like this Oprah energy on you. I mean, mirror up truth over here. <laughs> okay. Tomorrow, I'm going to ask if I can go on tour with him. Right? I mean, it'll be nice to get away and think about how I can use my platform differently.
3: Wait. What if you do a big ask? Like... Old school prom style,
5: <gasps> like the one you did for prom. Dozen donuts sent to first period. I do not want to go to prom with anyone but you.
3: Uh huh. Uh huh. Mixed my love of puns with my love of donuts and Hunter Earl.
7: Yes.
5: Yeah, and then on prom night, you said yes.
3: <laughs>
5: <Hey-o>.
2: <laughs> yeah. A little cliche, but he was bum. I got it. Whatever happened to Hunter?
3: Yeah, I know. I've been dying to whip out my U date.
2: You
5: date. It's this, it's this awesome thing that Stella has been doing forever. She rents a U-haul and then pimps it out to look like, well, whatever you want. We did one for my 25th birthday girls spa hang and a U-haul. It was a blast.
2: Oh God, you're so creative. Are
3: you down to help?
2: Help a friend and maybe get a donut. I can't think of anything crawler than saying no. <laughs> the best. When it comes to our friendship, people must be so jelly because we are anything but (laughs) old-fashioned. Okay, you can stop now. Yeah, thank God. I had nothing left in the tank.
1: Off of Stella, deep in thought, we go to Mateo's bachelor pad. Mateo and Atticus are playing video games on a couch.
6: I am so glad you moved back from Europe when you did.
4: Uh, Me too. Although I was so close to having sex with a woman from each country and I missed my goal by four. Uh, but there are like 50
6: countries in europe
4: i know so close
6: okay well i'm glad you're back you know it was me and all those ladies for way too long dude so what's stella's deal what
4: do you mean she hates me
6: no she just didn't grow up with a lot of money and has worked for everything she has so did i so did you I'm not saying you're you aren't a hard worker, but she couldn't go to fancy schools and travel through Europe. I mean, you know, not everyone gets to do that, right? Yeah, I know. So I can get how she could resent you a little carefree, privileged playboy. But soon she'll see that there's more to you than, you know, this.
4: (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa. What's wrong with this?
6: Nothing. But I mean, you're you're not going to be living like you're the kid from big when you're 50. Why not? Oh, so this is like forever.
4: Did you just get all judgy?
6: I mean, kind of, yeah. This feels like it has an expiration date. Why? Stella may think I'm selfish and terrible, but all men want this.
4: Society just tries to sell you on that other crap. But fine, Atticus, drink the Kool-Aid. Go live like a normal and I'll keep your seat warm for when you need to escape from your family.
6: Okay, hey, I am not normal. I live with my ex-wife. I am an abnormal.
4: Yeah, that's messed up. Man, I'm so glad you're moving out, buddy. It's time. Wait, you should move in with me. What? Yeah, I mean, I've got plenty of room, and I'm a great guy despite what some people might say.
6: Really? Wow, okay, Um, yeah. Okay, if, if I'm going to live with someone I'm not having sex with, they should at least have a PlayStation VR. Okay, Rumi.
4: And next up, I'm going to get you a date because I'm not just a selfish playboy. Give me
6: your
1: phone. Matteo grabs Atticus's phone and begins to type.
6: Uh, yeah, no. Okay. I know I can be funny and a little charming in a group, but remember, I've never actually dated anyone. Nora was, was it for me. So the idea of small talk and where did you go to college and how many siblings do you have? It kind of makes me want to go into a hole.
4: Uh, so, so what do you think of her?
1: Mateo shows Atticus the phone. The picture of a pretty girl is on the screen. Uh, she's cute.
4: Why? Because you have a date with her tomorrow. Boom. Now, would a selfish guy like me do something like that? You should probably get me something as a thank you.
1: Off of Atticus looking like a deer in headlights, we go to Books and Beers. Stella is behind the bar as the gang trickles in. Mateo is the first to arrive.
4: Hey. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Are we cool? Because yesterday...
3: Oh, I know. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Getting that letter was more triggering than I thought it would be.
4: Why? You have a great life. I mean, look at you. You're beautiful and you're on a bar. You're crushing it. I mean, what more do you want?
3: See, that's the thing. I don't know exactly what, but I know I want more. Um, And you went off and traveled the world and decided to come back here because you knew what you want. You know what you want, but I don't know. (laughs) So I guess I kind of, I was...
4: Um, maybe a little. Listen, it's okay not to know. We don't have to have it all figured out. You do.
3: I may not agree with it, but you know what you want.
4: Yeah, I do. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'll get it. So, uh, you haven't read your letter to us yet. Uh, can I read it?
3: Uh, no.
4: <laughs> Why? Did you write something about me? No. Really? Because I wrote about you.
3: Shut up. (laughs) You did?
4: I'll show you mine if you show me yours. The
1: heat between them is stupid.
3: Actually, I do want to show you something.
1: Mateo smiles, we're exterior books and beers in the parking lot outside of the bar there sits a U-Haul truck Stella opens the U-Haul and there's a table with candles and string lights a bottle of Tucker's favorite tequila a delicious dinner and a futon for after-dinner business it looks like it's out of a magazine
4: whoa this is like the nicest kidnapping
1: van ever Arlo approaches
3: Stella
5: it's amazing
1: Right? It's pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> Arlo hugs Stella. Stella is elated.
3: I call it a U date. Got roommates, got kids, got parents—no problem. Order a U date. Use it to nap, to binge your favorite show in uninterrupted, to hide from your in-laws. The uses are endless.
4: I'd legit order this all the time. This way, girls wouldn't have wouldn't know where I live. Oh,
1: Stella you. swats him.
4: Well, I, I, I'm kidding. But now that I think about it, maybe I'm not.
3: It's a good idea. Right. I've been toying with trying to do something with it, but I never did. Thinking maybe this could be a business. I don't know.
4: Look at you getting inspired.
1: Stella (laughs) smiles. Arlo gives Stella a wink and closes the (sighs) U-Haul.
3: This is Arlo's big night. She's going to take her relationship to the next level.
1: They begin to head back into the bar when Atticus approaches.
4: There he is. Atticus has a big date night tonight
1: to some passerbys
4: he's about to go on his first date since the divorce
1: stella and arlo whoop both are impressed That's
6: uh, that's not a thing you announce oh okay okay and uh i'm taking it
4: off my Insta story right now
6: where's nora she's packing me up she says she's happy for me but didn't need to see me go on a date now i always thought she'd be the first one back out there but it's me Ray.
1: The gang heads back into the bar. Inside books and beers, Atticus sits at the bar, finishing off a scotch with Arlo, Mateo, and Stella. All eyes are on the door. Atticus takes a deep breath. you nervous? He yeah. nods.
3: I never told you this, but when we first met in high school, I had a total crush on you. Shut up. I'm serious. <laughs> I even memorized your senior schedule. Homeroom, Brit lit, science, P.E., Spanish, and creative writing. I don't even remember that. You're funny and you're a total babe. You got this.
1: Okay.
6: Thanks, Stella. That helped.
1: (laughs) Just then, Atticus's Tinder date, Brooke, stunning, arrives. That's her.
4: Go get him, tiger.
1: (laughs) Atticus walks toward Brooke. Mateo gives Stella a look.
4: What? I'm pretty sure that was my senior schedule.
3: Really? (laughs) Weird.
1: They both look at each other and smile. Arlo delights in this. Tucker enters and waves to Arlo.
2: You ready, babe? Uh
3: Uh-huh. Bye.
1: Tucker and Arlo exit. Stella looks over at Atticus and Brooke on their date.
3: What do you think is happening over there?
1: Mateo and Stella begin to voice plant a la Mystery Science Theater 3000. We watch Atticus and Brooke move their lips, but we see Mateo and Stella doing the voices on Atticus.
4: Hi, I'm Atticus and I'm a nice guy. I'm still in my ex-wife and this will not go well, but after maybe 12 of these and I might actually have a shot at meeting someone. Or maybe be in love with her forever and die alone. And
3: I've already been on way too many of these forgettable, disappointing dates. I like always end the night early and go home to drink red wine alone while watching the Food Network. And
1: on a plate, <laughs> on the plate of food.
4: Hola, I am the jalapeno poppers. <laughs>
1: Stella elbows him. The camera moves from the plate of poppers back to Atticus.
4: <laughs> the sad part is, is I also love drinking red wine. And watching the Food Network, but you'll probably never find that about me.
3: (laughs) Okay, wait. Are you still being Atticus or?
4: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure anymore.
3: (laughs) It's too sad. We have to go on these dates and put on a show. We try to distill the most interesting version of ourselves and serve it up in the hopes that a year from now, we can just be who we really are and share a pint of Ben and Jerry's Fish Food Ice Cream while we watch Rachel Maddow.
4: Fish Food Ice Cream and Rachel Maddow, you are a true romantic.
3: Okay, you're making fun of me, but
4: I think that is real romance. Uh, No, uh, I'm not making fun of you. What are you doing later?
3: Wait, wait, what? Are you like...
4: Uh, Yeah, I, I... I thought I was getting a vibe. Did I read that wrong?
3: I'm, I'm seeing someone. No, you're not. I don't think it'd be a good idea. You and me. Like, no. No, 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 no.
4: <laughs> yeah, but one no would have been fine. I understand consent. Sorry, I uh, misread the situation.
3: No, no. I, I mean, I would love for us to be, like, friends.
4: Yeah, yeah. Totally, friends are the best. So friendly, let's be friends.
1: They go back to watching Atticus. Brooke laughs at something. Mateo and Stella both smile and clink glasses. Their boy is back. Interior of the U-Haul, continuous. Tucker and Arlo sit in the magic that is the U-Haul. Now that the door is closed and music is playing and the candles are lit, it is all magic. This is amazing.
5: I know, right? So,
1: um, listen. Off of Tucker listening, we go to books and beers as they were. Brooke laughs again.
3: Okay. Now they are just showing off.
1: I know. I'm even impressed. Just then Stella gets a text from Arlo. The text reads U-Haul now emergency in the U-Haul. The gang sit and enjoy Arlo's U-Haul date. It's cramped, but cute. Nora has joined them. All are sharing the tequila.
2: He broke
5: up with you? Yep. And gave me my car back with an empty tank of gas. I mean... Oh, hon, we are so sorry. Thanks, guys. He wanted his freedom on the road, but he said, but he said he'd be down to pick things up when he came back. And I was like, um,
3: no, thank you. Honestly, I never liked him.
1: Mateo gives yes. Stella an, oh, really look.
2: You deserve so much better. I know.
1: Seriously, you are a catch.
2: I know.
6: I want to say something supportive, but I'm a little wedged over here, but I'm glad you're okay. Totally worth cutting my date short. Listen,
4: I'm telling you, it's worth it. It's good. Leave her wanting more.
6: Okay,
2: not that I don't want to hear all about my ex-husband and how he crushed his first date, but should, could we focus on Arlo, please? Thanks, Nora. Guys, I'm,
5: I'm honestly surprised that I feel so fine. I, I would have thought I'd be weeping and drunk and want to watch crappy 90s rom-coms. I think, I think Tucker might have been a distraction. And now I, I feel like I can focus on how to make women feel better about themselves through my work. Am I excited? I think I feel excited.
6: That's great. I feel like I've lost feeling in my legs. Is this what you ladies feel like when you wear spanks?
1: Arlo opens the door and they begin to get out. All right, note to your customers, four people max. Stella laughs.
4: Uh, no, but I'm serious, you date can be a thing. If you want an investor, I'm in.
3: <laughs> really? Wait, why would you do that?
4: Because I believe in you, kid.
1: Stella smiles. Maybe there's hope for Mateo after all. In the girl's apartment the next day, Nora enters. Stella and Arlo are there.
2: He is all moved into Mateo's. How do you feel? Free? Yes. <laughs> terrified. Well, that's
3: totally natural.
2: I guess living with Atticus kept me from putting myself out there, and now I I have no more excuses. So, you guys.
5: We are all single at the same time. Huh? We are going to have the time to self-care the crap out of this year. Sheet masks and uh, vision boards and so much tequila, but like medium shelf.
2: Ooh, look at us. (laughs) Yes.
1: The girls do a group hug. We're in books and beers that night. The gang all sit drinking.
2: Dang, you're seeing her again tonight? Good for you. That's good for you. You should get out
6: there too. It's time.
2: Yes, I know. I will. Honestly, I'm. I'm not so worried about dating guys because, <laughs> duh, done that. But with women, I just feel so behind. I mean, I've never even kissed a woman, so it's it's a little more nerve wracking. Uh, hold up, you've you've never kissed a woman? Well, I drunk tongued my Fiona Apple poster once. So does that count? <laughs> that doesn't count.
3: How is that even possible? Even I've kissed a woman. You have? Well, I was married. So
5: you should just kiss a woman to get that over with. Happy to volunteer. Seriously?
2: Totally. I've done it tons of times for boys. So all of you who... uh, You've all kissed women here, except for me. Yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. All right. Okay. Let's do it. Should I, like freshen up or brush my teeth or something first or...
1: Arlo grabs Nora and kisses her. It is indeed hot. Mateo cheers. The group all catcall and whoop.
4: Get it! I love, I love hanging out with you guys.
5: Dang! <sighs> right? Ah, yeah. No, it's still straight though, but okay. if anything could have swayed me, it would have been that
2: epic kiss. Nice lips. Ah, thank you, my lady.
4: Wait, wait, Nora. Nora. No. You should kiss Stella.
2: Oh, that's not how that works, buddy. But thank you, guys. I do feel better. So soft. So soft.
1: Mr. Frost enters. Oh, hey, guys. How are you doing? Well, this
0: is like becoming a thing. Good to see you again, man.
5: (laughs) Mr. Frost, thank you again for our letters. It kind of rocked our world. Not going to lie.
2: Yeah, you didn't know what a bomb you were dropping on us.
0: (laughs) Well, I hope it was mostly positive.
2: Oh, totally. But you
5: realize you sent them a year early, right? I did? <laughs> yeah. Our tenure is next year.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that just gives you an extra year to get your life on track. Now, who wants a drink? On me.
1: Atticus, Stella, and Nora raise their hands. Arlo seems a tad suspicious, but brushes it off and raises her hand. Mateo raises both his hands. Shall we? He follows her to the bar. She pours the drinks.
3: When are you going to tell them? Which thing? That you're using them as lab rats for your next book.
0: I'm not using them. I have a rare opportunity to see what happens to students in a decade. This could be an important study. Do they overcome who they were then or remain who they were in high school forever?
3: Mm -hmm. I just don't want you using my friends.
1: Do you think I'm using you? Because I'm not. He brings her in for a kiss.
3: Not sure how they're going to handle me dating our old teacher either.
1: Unbeknownst to the two, Arlo has seen the kiss. She is stunned, but returns to the group shaken. Has her best friend been keeping secrets from her? Stella brings the drinks over to the gang. They all take their drinks over.
0: A toast to who we were and who we hope to become.
1: The gang all lift their respective glasses and say, with hope and intention, Cheers. 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 And off, off of that toast, we fade to black. <laughs> Strange planets, curious technology, and a fantastic vision of the distant future. Featuring Martin Starr. So we're going on day 14. Shuttle still hasn't come. Aparna Nancherla.
7: The security system provides you with emotional security.
6: You do the rest.
1: Echo Kellum. Can you disconnect me or not? Uri Kondabolu. I'm staying. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jeffrey McGiver.
6: Could you play Cindy Lauper's
4: girls just want to have fun?
1: It's the Outer Reach.
4: Stories from beyond. Now available for free
1: at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you listen. All right. Hey, Gloria.
7: Hey.
1: We're official now. We're recording.
7: We're doing Uh,
1: it. You're a busy lady right now. You've got so much going on. Tell me, give me the rundown. What's happening?
7: Well the rundown is so we're still waiting to see what's happening with one day at a time. So we uh we were able to shoot 6 episodes and then we did zoom rooms and we wrote the rest of the se- we have the rest of the season ready to go. We actually turned one of the episodes into an animated special. So we have 6 more episodes of season 4 that are ready, but we'll see. And we have not Heard what's happening? We don't know what's happening in terms of do we get to shoot those? Are we now just trying to get picked up for a season five and roll those episodes into season five? We have no idea. So hoping that we will be able to continue making one day at a time. We love making the show, and and uh, but we are in a we are in a state of who knows what's happening. We don't know what's happening with Pop the network because they canceled everything else, and we you know it's it's so much.
1: Did they, and, um, did they cancel? Are you the sole remaining pop original show right now?
7: Soul, but like, I don't even know what pop, I mean, the president of pop who's wonderful just went to run audible. So it's like, is pop canceled? Like what, like, <laughs> what is happening? Like we don't know, we don't know what's happening. So we are literally in wait. And then, you know, there was talk of us perhaps being on CBS this summer or this fall which would be a game changer for our little show to get network attention. So obviously we're, we're hoping that that happens. Um, so we'll, we'll see. So one day at a time, we don't know. We're, we're waiting to see. And then I just started my Amazon deal and they have been extraordinary, like tremendous in their support so I am currently writing two uh, pilots in 30 days. They they approved <laughs> uh, two pilots, and then I think there will be more uh, next week that I'll be supervising. So I'm ju- I've jumped in on that, which is great. And then I have uh, a feature with Natasha Rothwell from Insecure for HBO Max that we are uh, that we're writing. So
1: and I read about that, and it sounds so cool. Will you tell people what that is?
7: Yes. Well, so basically, Natasha and I are friends, and she came over to have lunch with me, and we always wanted to do something together. And we were really just talking over lunch, and she was like, what are the movies you loved growing up? And I said, oh, I loved all those John Hughes movies. Like, that was, you know, I was Molly Rewald. She's like, I was Molly Rewald. And I said, it's so weird that a Chicago high school had no people of color. (laughs) And she goes, I know. And I'm like, it's as though, like, if you just moved the camera over to the left, like, all the people of color were over there just out of frame. And she's like, that's it. That's the movie. And so that's what we came up with. It's sort of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but the, the you know, the little black and brown girl, me and Natasha as 14, as 16 year olds rather, uh, are the center of the story. And, uh, you know, cause we were kids of the eighties, we were there falling in love and all those things, feathered hair and bad bangs and, you know, so that's, that was, it just, it just kind of fell into place. Um, it's I mean, so great. Such a good time. Dude, we're laughing our butts off doing it. We're having so much fun.
1: And are like the breakfast club kids sort of like off? They're in the background. Bit. They're in the background.
7: Yeah. So we'll see like, you know, we, we have to, we've been talking with Warner Brothers about the way to parody that, you know, like, I think it's just going to be like a redhead with wearing pink, you know, like we'll just have people in the periphery walk by, but they're the background characters and we're, you know, we're the leads.
1: Yeah. It's I can't wait. So, is-
7: so fun. So fun. And HBO Max has been a- a- awesome, unbelievable. So it's just a lot of – it's it's a lot of support. It's a lot of – I think for years it was – I would explain pitches and people would be like, I don't know. I don't get it. And now there's a markedly difference. Like, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. Tell me more. In a way that I, I almost feel like what's ha- what's happening. <laughs> but it's wonderful. It's what – I'll take it.
1: Yeah, it does feel like there's actual – change right now
7: there does and so the i get nervous though because it's like i don't it, it, how do we keep this going how do we i mean because look for, there is and then also you look at network television and there's not one latino family on network tv not one right so it's technically good but i mean it's another reason why i would love one day to time to be on cbs because baker and the beauty was the last network show that was centered around a, a latino family and that just got canceled and Jaime Camille was on a show this year that just got canceled. So it's like, we still don't have the, the representation in mainstream. You know, you have to go to a pay service or you have to go elsewhere. And so we're really trying to reach Americans that might maybe don't have the resources to have streaming. You know, when, when we were making One Day at a Time on Netflix, I would always say like, I'm making this show for people who I don't know if they can afford the service this is on. So uh it's network is still attractive to me in terms of just the most eyeballs it's free television. So
1: yeah. And it is sometimes hard to remember that being here in LA that that is still the case because when you're here among TV writer peers it feels like broadcast is niche and mainstream culture is Netflix and Amazon because that's what everyone here watches and you sort of forget right. no there's big swaths of the country. Big
7: swaths of the country. <laughs> That don't even have dVR right that that watch in real time and you know so so i I still want to reach those people,
1: yeah, yeah, and you should um, hopefully the change extends I mean I, I do feel like you're right. the change has happened at the streaming the cable and streaming services the networks still it's slower
7: slower on. to slower to come to the table
1: yeah um, so let's go back and talk about. How you got started writing?
7: How I got started writing, it's 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 so interesting because you know, whenever we're telling our origin stories, it's like where do you go, where do you start? You know? <laughs> where do you start? So I am from Portland, Oregon. So I really start from the beginning. So I'm from Portland, Oregon. I am Cuban American. My parents came in 1962. And it's before Miami was Miami. Miami became Miami because of this Cuban influx of fourteen thousand Cuban children, and then their pa- parents started to come over between nineteen sixty 1960 and nineteen sixty two. There was a program under the Kennedy administration called Operation Pedro Pan that took Cuban children out of Cuba and brought them to the United States with the support of various religious organizations helping. And uh, and then once it was like, oh, I guess we can't get Castro out, then all the parents started coming over. So there was no infrastructure. There was no You know, tons of apartments or it just was farmland mostly, and so churches all over the country started taking in families. So my parents, both my both sets of parents, are are Cuban and came over. They're both Pedro Pan kids, and they they came with like forty other families to Portland, Oregon. So there's like a very thriving Cuban American community in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. So I grew up in. I was sort of fish out of water in that I had to I had to really straddle these two worlds. This world of of these Cubans, and and every birthday party was everybody, and then a very very white uh, Portland, Oregon. So the straddling of the two worlds was something I've been doing since I was a kid, code-switching, we call it. I later learned there was a term for it. (laughs) But storytelling was always something that I loved. So, like, acting the school plays, I used to sing at malls, I was in pageants, the whole nine. Like, I was out there telling stories and repping my community. And then uh, when we were 13, we went on um, a spring break trip to San Diego, California. And my parents could not stop talking about how much it reminded them of Cuba. And they sat my brother and I down and they were like, what would you think if we moved here? And I was like, let's do it. I mean, it was so much more vibrant and warm. And just literally the weather was warm. I have terrible allergies. So I'm not a Oregon was a beautiful place, but I was on allergy medicine constantly. My Caribbean blood needs more. So we moved and and, uh, I had four years in San Diego. And that really was the first time I met other Latinos and understood the differences between Latino communities and how this country treats Latino communities, which was very interesting for me and living in a border town and, and seeing what that was. And, uh, and storytelling still always factored in. I wanted to tell stories in some way. Am I going to be an actor? Am I, am not sure. And in college, um, I started, to, there was a playwrights program and I was on the committee because I was acted in plays and I was in the student, uh, you know, drama organization, the Delray Players, and we decided to do a playwrights festival for new writers. And all of the plays that we got submitted were so angsty, like so college angsty. And I was like, I just doesn't anyone want to watch just something fun and funny? And so I submit. I wrote a little rom com, and I submitted it, and it got in, and then it won playwright of the year. And then it it went on to ACTF, which is the Kennedy Center Theater Festival. Wow! And I was like, oh my god, I had never th- I had never written plays before, and I was not I didn't know the structure. I just wrote a ten minute play, and it was really fun, and it got all this tension And so that was the first time I really realized the power of, of storytelling and the fun. And as an actor, never nervous, as a writer, dying. Like, just because there's nothing to hide behind. It's just you. And I was just like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And so that fear, I wanted to lean into that. Like, why does that scare me? And I want to investigate that a little bit more. But by then, I'm like finishing school. Finishing college, and I'm like, oh no, it's too late. I'm 22. I should have gone in. I should have been like, I guess an English major. St- oh no! So I decided to take a year and just um, save money. I worked for ADP, Automatic Data Processing, A-roll. Uh, and saved money so that I could go to grad school and study. And I went to grad school at the University of London, Goldsmiths College, and I just immersed myself in playwriting and play acting. And I have a, a master's degree in performance and playwriting from. University of London, and while I was there, I worked in the Royal Court Theatre, which is like the premier writers' theatre in London. So I was—I just had access to seeing a lot of plays, reading a lot of plays, and it was just the most glorious uh, year. And then while I was there, I submitted to a lot of festivals and would write like a... I was just writing, 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 writing. So there's a student play script competition that Alan Aikborn who's like the Neil Simon of England, uh, puts on. And at the Scarborough festival, and I submitted six plays to it. And one of my plays won. And I got to see it put up by British actors doing American accents, which was fabulous. That's and incredible. then I got to have high tea with Alan Ackborn, <laughs> wow. just me and him. It was unreal. It was insane. It was insane. Um, and he Did he say um,
1: anything like that you still remember? Was there any nuggets? He was just,
7: he was just really supportive. He just loved, he was like, I just love that you came here and you kind of took it by storm and you know, you haven't been here that long, and you, you know, I think your hustle. He he really spoke to me about like he sees the hustle, and he didn't worry about me. He, he did say, I don't, I'm not worried about you. And something about that made me go like, oh, okay, so then maybe I shouldn't worry either. But it was it was such a blur. I wish I had recorded it or something because I I'm just not even uh, my brain hurts with just the memory of it all and and taking it all in and being in his presence. Um. So then when I came back from London. I was like, oh no, now what do I do? I'm in LA. I have a theater degree. Nobody cares. I have all the student debt. Like, what am I what? So I, I was working, I got a job at Houston Century City, R.I.P. Houston's. Remember that, Houston's? Sure. The best. That, it was the best. That spinach, that spinach uh, uh, artichoke dip, next level. Those soups, come on, ribs, get out of here. I still go to the one in Manhattan Beach. I love it. Uh, and while I was there, I was just saying like, if anyone knows, anybody, I just didn't know anybody. I'm like, if anybody knows anybody working in any industry, anything, <laughs> just let me know. You're I asking
1: customers?
7: Know. No, I'm asking like <laughs> friends. I mean, look, I had the benefit of at least I went to Loyola. So I went to, I went to college here. So I did have my alumni connection, right? And then Chris Hanada, who is a producer, who was an assistant at the time. Calls me up and he was like, okay, there's a writer director. I can't tell you who it is. Um, they just need somebody to sit in the office and take packages. So he's happy that it's a writer because it's boring. I can't tell you who it is. Tech, like, like send your fax, fax your <laughs> resume, right? Very top secret. So I find a fax machine. I do a cover letter to, to who it may concern. I fax my resume and I get a phone call. And it's Cameron Crowe's second assistant, to be Cameron Crowe's second assistant. So I had an interview with Danny Bramson, who was Cameron's best friend who ran Warner Music at the time. And Danny was the one who checked me out, who interviewed me. So I had an interview with Danny. And then at the end of it, he's like, great, you start on Monday. And I was like, what? And so I met Cameron on my first day of work for him as the second assistant in the Vinyl Films offices for post-production of, um, no, for the DVD release of Almost Famous and for post-production on Vanilla Sky. And that was my first industry job. And Cameron was lovely, kind, uh, really sweet to me, and uh, would let me listen in on calls. And would you know was was a generous and kind person. And then when the when the operation shut down, when we were done, you know, I worked out of the house. And how it would work is I'd come in, he'd be up writing all night. So he would leave a list for me on the kitchen table of what he needed done. And he didn't care if I went on auditions, went, went and did writing, didn't care as long as everything on the list was done. So I could plan my day accordingly, as long as I went to Whole Foods to get the things he needed, drop off the dry cleaning, fill the car with gas, you know, whatever needed to be done. And so it was amazing because I would go to Cameron's Early, get the stuff done on the list, and then I would go to the Museum of TV and Radio, and I would spend two or three hours there breaking down scripts and teaching myself TV writing. And then after a period of time, he, he said to me, like, Gloria, sitcom is where you need to be. Sitcom is, I think, where you need to be. You write short plays, you write monologues, like, you really need to write a spec. And I'm like, what's a spec? <laughs> he's like, it's an existing TV show. You write, you he's the one that told me. I had no idea. So I wrote a spec of Sex and the City, and Everybody Loves Raymond, and um, the Sex and the City, which is going up next weekend, is uh, I don't know when this is going to be released, so you might want to cut this part out, but that I wrote those when I was working for Cameron. And then shortly thereafter, I got an opportunity to be a writer's assistant on a comedy. And I talked to him about it, and I said, what do you think? And he goes, well, I'll miss you, but that's probably a good entry, you know, in and so I made the very difficult decision of leaving Cameron, which was so... It was such a lovely, comfortable job, and he was so nice. So it was hard to leave, but I left. And I was a writer's assistant on The Ortegas. And then from there, I um, i was trying to figure out what to do next. I put on... While I was at The Ortegas, I decided to put up a monologue show. This is the longest story, Andrew, so cut me off if
1: you need to... No, off. no, no. That's okay. great.
7: So I decided that what I knew was theater and I knew how to put up black box theater because that's what I had been doing. So I decide, and I had also heard so consistently that women aren't funny that I was like, okay, I'm going to put up a female, all female monologue show. I'm going to cast very diverse and I'm just going to put it up and see what happens. And so I wrote a 15 person monologue show. I cast it. I went to all my favorite charities. I gave them free tickets to opening night, 10 tickets. 10 tickets to opening night to like various organizations. Then I gave the actors two free tickets to opening night. Then I found out that backstage West and LA weekly will review you if you have a six week run. So I got the Hudson Avenue theater on Santa Monica Boulevard. I said, what's your dead night? And they said, Tuesdays or Wednesdays. And I said, great. I'll take six Tuesdays in a row. And then I wrote up a press release and I sent it out so that we'd get reviewed And the first night was sold out because everybody was free. (laughs) And then we were reviewed and then people told people. And then the rest of the run, we had a line around the block to get in like waiting list. And it just was like, Oh, this is how to do it. This is how I do it. And so I would keep on putting up those shows every six months. I would put up another show and that's the agent and the manager came. Their assistants came and then they came and then they, they signed me. Like, it, it really was a, if you build it, they will come, you know, and, and that's kind of came together. And then I remember based on that, my man my, I had a manager now and they sent me to HBO it was my first professional, like meeting as a writer. And I went in a business suit because I didn't know that writers dressed like garbage people. <laughs> um, I went in a business suit and I could just see the looks on their faces where they were like, Oh my God, she's adorable. <laughs> she has, <laughs> she has <a> <laughs> And I went in with like flashcards of like, here's one idea. Here's another idea. Here's a- I didn't know how to do a general. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I walked out of the meeting and I called my agent. I was like, I feel stupid because they were being nice to me, but I could tell that they were like, she's so green. And I'm embarrassed. And I don't know why I'm pitching shows when I've never been in a writer's room. Can I please just sit down with a showrunner, any showrunner? And so Mark Reisman who was a writer on Frasier was kind enough to sit down with me and have coffee, which like as a showrunner now, I realized like what an enormous favor that was. What a huge, like taking time out of his life. So even more gratitude to Mark. Uh, And we, we sat down and I just asked him every question I had and he was so nice. And then six months later, he got a show on the air and he hired me as a staff writer.
1: Wow. What show was that?
7: Quintuplets. Okay. Yeah.
1: So that first meeting in HBO. So the agent and manager give you no advice. Nothing. <laughs> that's so classic. That's thing. Yeah, it doesn't ever occur. It always amazes me. That it doesn't occur to them to just let people know. Like here's this
7: is what it yeah. is.
1: Yeah. Um, but that's there's so many great aspects to that to that story. Just your. Like how proactive you were, the incentive like to take it and just put on those shows and 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 that and people will come and find you that way is amazing. I love that Mark sat down and met with you and that yeah. you remember that and I'm sure you've carried that with you. Yeah. Want to yeah. do the same thing for people, yeah. um, and so so you get on a show and now you're a working writer. But I, and then how smoothly did the rest of it? Tumble- Not
7: smooth. Not smooth, Andrew. Not smooth. <laughs> No, I didn't know. Look, I I didn't know how to be in a room. I didn't know really what the job was. There, different rooms have different cultures, and it's a really interesting thing to see good people be not great showrunners, too. Right? Like, there, it's a it's a skill set. It's a it's a it's it's weird to be a talented writer and also be expected to know how to run a company, basically. Yeah. So, and I think that. For In those people's defenses, they probably didn't know either. You know, they saw based on the show that they were on and they emulated that. And, and so I think a lot of bad habits were, were, were passed down of like, well, this is how it is because this is how we did it and that was successful. That, so that must be how we do it. So it was great to be in rooms because I definitely sat there and thought, well, this is efficient. This is not efficient. I would do this. I wouldn't do that. Right. That's what everybody kind of does when you're in these rooms. And so I learned what I liked and what I didn't like. Um, and oftentimes, I I tried to be the model minority because I just felt like I can't... If I mess it up, then they're never going to hire another woman or a person of color again. So there's this weird pressure. There were some rooms where I felt very silenced because I would say something and it wouldn't... You know, you have all the Harvard guys kind of look at you. I mean, there was... You know, there was so... And I think that what I didn't realize until much, much later, and also, I was also super sensitive. So it's like, if I did say something and everyone hated it, I would just go into my, or somebody made a disparaging comment or joke.
1: Three days of quiet.
7: It shut me down, right? As opposed to, it's not about you, Gloria. I wish somebody had just said, it's not about you. It's not about if people like you. It's not about if they think you're funny. You're here to be a pitch machine. You're here to pitch, pitch, pitch. You like this? You don't like that? Okay, Okay, what about this? Okay, what about this? Okay, what about this? You thought about that idea three seconds ago. It doesn't cost you that much. Everything would just cost me so much because I put added mustard on it. And that was my own stuff that I had to work through. And, you know, I think that that's, you know, Mike Royce, Mike Royce, who healed all wounds, uh, (laughs) would, would say like, oh, when I come into a room, he said, when I went into the first room on Raymond, I just had to be funny. You walk in with like five things you have to do. And then five extra pressures. He's like, it's just a different thing. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you for saying that. I feel so seen. (laughs) So, yeah, I wish somebody just said, it's not about you. And also, I also thought for for too long that, oh, they've hired me so I can bring my special glorious songs to the show. No, they're not wrong, Gloria, wrong. What they want is a mimic. What they want is to make their show and they want my help to make their show. So I need to pitch to them what they like, not what I like. Now I can say, hey, if I was a viewer, I think I would like this more. I could say that. But I'm there to be a mimic and to support the showrunner's vision. I didn't know that for years. And that would have saved me so much heartache had somebody just told me that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, How often were you in those early shows Were you the only person of color in the room?
7: Um, It depended on the room How I Met Your Mother was was actually pretty good They had a lot of women and and a lot of minority women But um, Quintopolis I was the only woman uh, Oh no, Jen Fisher So it was me and Jen Fisher in that room But I was the only person of color in that room Uh, I was the Yeah, I was the only A couple of times And sometimes there would be one other um, it just varied. It varied on it varied on rooms. And it varied on, and then the more comfortable I got, the more I could also say, you know, like I said to Mark Cherry, hey man, there's a show about like four Latinas. Let's get some more Latinas in here. And he was like, oh, okay, great. Will you read these people and tell me who you like? You know, and that's how I met Tanya Siracho, who's now my sister. <laughs> uh, so some people are more open to hearing it. And and certainly over time, I also got more comfortable understanding my purpose there and understanding how I can be helpful. So, but that all took time. I mean, there are just conversations that I wish I could have had that would have made the road easier and would have made me a more effective person in some of these rooms that I know now. Like it, it was really after, you know, between season three and season four of One Day at a Time, Mike and I were both put on United We Fall. And it was the first time I had just been on staff since being a showrunner. And I could not believe how much better I was as a person on staff after being a showrunner because I was like, oh, I'm just here to serve Goldie, man, whatever he wants. You want that? I mean, I was, a, I was so much more of a pitch machine. I was so much better able to write the script because I was trying to write it specifically in his voice from having observed him in the room and seeing the kind of stuff that he responds to. I, like, I had never been a better staff writer than after I had showrun. But of course, how do we... Right. How do we give this information to people so that they can be more effective in rooms so that they can, you know, move up the ladder a little bit more? Because when you're in these rooms, the other thing is to get your next job, they call your last – the shower will call whoever they know that was on that staff. And some people I gelled with, and some people were like, we don't get her. We don't know what the hell she's doing. And so depending on who they call, I either get a good review or a bad review – and that would determine what jobs you get and where you are in the in the chain of your next gig. So it, it's it, I'm tr- I try very hard now to let people know this stuff early so they don't make the same mistakes I made so that their journey is a little bit easier.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because you did come up when you were still writing specs of existing shows, right? So that is a mimic test, right? If you're that doing that... Test. But I would not say
7: I got hired on the plays. I always got hired right. based on the plays.
1: Okay, but you know, now, as you know, you never read any specs of existing shows. You are reading. I always,
7: ask. I always ask for a spec.
1: And do people have them?
7: Yeah, or I'll make them write them. I, I, because I, I think I don't know why the spec went away.
1: I it's know. Crazy. I don't either. I mean, I guess I do actually. I do know because I was there when it happened. What and happened? What happened was um, there once cable. And then, you know, streaming started taking off and there were so many more shows, the odds that the showrunner knew the show got lower. So at at a time when I was writing, whatever, you wrote a Frasier, you wrote a Mad About You, you wrote a Friends, a Seinfeld, everyone knew those shows, right? Um, and then it became, well, I want to write, you know, the show the writer might like might be some more obscure show that the showrunner doesn't know. And then he can't tell, are they really mimicking this well? Are they hitting the tone? Um, And no one wanted to write like, what could you write? Big bang. You know how I met your mother, there became fewer shows that, you know, everyone knew. And that's at the point where it started to be, Oh, well, we'll read this original material. And then what the, the problem is if you're, you're hired you know, on original material and that's what you've written, you don't have that experience of being a mimic. And so there's more of a chance that you think you're going to have that same attitude you came into the room with. Like, they're here for my particular unique voice and that's what I'm here to do. And, and you're right. That's not what you're there to do. It's
7: not the job. It's not the job.
1: No. <laughs> no. Uh, get inside the showrunner's head and pitch what the showrunner is looking for. That is, that's the job.
4: That's right. Uh, that's the job.
1: So, at what point do you start writing pilots?
7: I sold, my first pilot I sold was my third season on on, uh, How I Met Your Mother. So, that was the first pilot I sold. It was a one-hour format. It was a telenovela format um, that I sold to Fox. So, I wrote that. And then every year after that, I I would sell a pilot, but it was like, it was the pilot sale that like nobody heard about, right? Like how many pilot sales that nobody, nobody hears about them. There's no announcement. Um, it, some of them very much felt like we're filling a quota, you know, like, Oh, we got one that's being written by a Latina. So, (laughs) but they, I don't know how seriously it was. They were being taken. I don't really feel like anything was, was being seriously considered until after I did one day at a time. Okay. There felt like a very noticeable shift about the interest uh, in my pilots. Of course. So after that show after that <laughs> trip became successful.
1: Yeah. yeah. So then how does one day at a time come about?
7: So one day at a time came about because, uh, so I also very much in the journey was trying to find out what do I do best, right? Like what is my career? What is the thing that I do the very best so that I can focus that and ride that horse a little bit more. And so, I was encouraging my agents to send me out for other stuff, uh, not just straight-up comedy. And also, multicams were slimming. You know, there weren't that many. Uh, and I had two babies as well. And when I had babies, I took time off every time. So that affected my career. Uh, so I wanted to – I had done a couple of multicams. I wanted to, to try either one hour or single cam. And I was sent out to, uh, I knew Mark Cherry because Mark Cherry had come and seen my place. And he talked to me about um, devious maids. And I was pregnant and I told him I was pregnant. And he said, well, I, I'll make it very nice for you. So you can come and work and then take eight weeks off and then come back. And he did. He, I had a nursery at ABC and my mom would come with me with the baby and I would pump or I would feed the baby in the writer's room while I was pitching jokes under a. <laughs> blanket um and then when that went when when that went on hiatus I got another job on um mixology which was a single cam for ABC which was super fun for my first time on a single cam I had such a good time on that show and was very sad to see it go away that would have been such a perfect Netflix show it just was hard for I think ABC but I had such a good time doing single cam and I was like oh I really like okay so I like soap I like single cam. Cool. And then I was offered uh, a meeting with Diane Ruggiero and and Rob Thomas for iZombie. And I was like, oh, I don't write this at all. But I just love, I'm so, I was so obsessed with Veronica Mars. I was like, I just want to sit down and meet them. And I like fell in love with them and then was shocked when they hired me. (laughs) (laughs) Shocked. And then I did that show and I will admit, I don't, I don't, I don't write genre. I mean, I actually, that's not true. The the zombie element of it, I actually think I did really well. It was the procedural element that my brain cannot do procedural. I don't care who killed the person. I don't. So it was, it was like just not a, it was like, it was, I remember sitting with Rob and it was like, oh, we just love each other. But like, I can't write this show. (laughs) It's not (laughs) what I do. And so after that, it was like, all right, so. Procedural, I will never write it again. It's not for me. Multicam, single cam, and soap are what, what I love. And now that I've been away from multicam for a while, I miss it. Maybe I'll write family, maybe I'll write family multicam. Maybe I'll try finally to write my family. And honestly, I feel like the words like are in a thought bubble outside of my mouth when I get the phone call, Norman Lear wants to sit down with you. Insane. <laughs>
1: insane how does that's through the agent or? i know
7: my, my 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 agents are like are you a witch like it, it's <laughs> it's like insane so it was like crazy and so i again just wanted to meet norman lear so i said of course of course and so i sat down with norman no intention of doing the show i mean i know i just want to sit, i was like what i just need to sit down with this legend and he is so disarming have you met him
1: I haven't. I've been in his presence, but I've never actually talked to him.
7: I love him so much. (laughs) I love him so much. Within 30 minutes, I just felt he is genuinely interested. He is genuinely... At that age, after having accomplished everything and met everyone, met the most interesting people in the world, he still gave a shit about... This little Cuban girl sitting opposite him. It blew my mind. I felt like I was the only person in the room. His eyes were locked on me, and he was asking me questions about my life, and I, I just couldn't – it was unbelievable. And something about how disarming he was made me – like truth started coming out of my mouth. And so he was like, so we want to do this multicam Latino family, and I don't know why, Andrew, but I said, like, I don't, I don't know that you should. And he was like, What? <laughs> And I said, it's just people, my community is very difficult. It's 19 countries under the umbrella of Latinidad. We are hard. We're a hard market because we're so starved for, for representation that when something exists for us, we want it to encompass everything that is me. And if it's not, then we're like, screw that, you know, because we're so, we're mad and we're, we've been trusting. And then again and again, we watch something that's a stereotype and it gets us upset. And so it's, it's a tall order. And he said, well, what, what do you think? Is the fix for that, and so we started talking about what I thought the fix would be and what I would do, and what, and then I did my whole thing, and then he was like, "Well, then let's just do that." Hmm. And I was like, "Can we do that?" And he's like, "Yeah, let's just do that. You're my girl." And so I, I remember I walked to my car and I called my agents. I'm like, "He said, let's just do that. I'm your girl. What does that mean?" <laughs> and. It meant that he had chosen me with Mike, Mike Mike Royce was already attached. And then it was the nervousness of like, oh, I've heard about this story. The white guy's attached to the project and then they bring on the Latina for color. But really, she's not. So the first time I met, I had made some calls about Mike Royce. i had heard, no, he's a good guy. You should sit down with him. And I sat down with Mike Royce and the first words out of his mouth were, we're partners. Just so you know, this is not me, right? We are partners I'm going to teach you how to be a showrunner and you can be a showrunner for the rest of your life and work forever because people always need showrunners. And then every day after that, he backed that up with action. And so it, it was working with Mike and Norman and having them be such advocates for me, uh, changed my life, changed my life.
1: Wow. I didn't realize that Mike was, Mike preceded you, like that he was already. Okay. And, uh, geez, what that's Gloria? That's just the (laughs) most incredible story. So, um, okay. So you do one day at a time and I know it's been, this amazing and somewhat bumpy ride all along every season. It's just like, are we getting another season? Are we not? It's
7: I mean, that's so many shows, right? That's yeah. so many shows that are like, you just don't know your fate. Um, so that I've, I've been so used to not knowing, being on great shows. I mean, my I Met Your Mother was the same way for the first three seasons. We never knew. We were always on the on the chopping block, possibly. So that was a feeling I had gotten used to. I think that the, the difference with this show was because there were so few shows and because for so long people weren't getting it right and it seemed from the community we were hearing that they were really happy with the portrayals and they really felt seen and not just the latinx community but lgbtq community and the veteran community so we had such a a fan base that was so loving and so passionate that um I just got really earned. I mean, I feel like raunchy with heart is my brand or it was for a long time, raunchy with heart. Like I can make a dick joke and then make you cry in one, in two lines. Um, make you feel your feelings. Uh, I decided to get a publicist, which was one of the best things I ever did. And it's a, I think that's a fairly new phenomenon because before writers, we'd just be in the caves and nobody cared to hear from us. But now there is sort of a, uh, a currency of your face of, of people being like, oh, Andrew, I think you're a good guy and you're doing nice things and I just want to support you as an artist because I like you. Like that's what Twitter has made happen is that people are like, I just want to support you. as," a, and, and my husband is a cartoonist and he, is a, he works completely for himself and his entire business model is based on the fact that people like him and like his art and want to support him as an artist. And I've learned so much watching him go through the process of being a webcomic who doesn't work for a major, you know, conglomerate of cartoonists because we were, when, when we've been together forever, my husband and I, we went to high school together and, and, you know, our first kiss was when we were 18 and there we go. Um, and he has been so interesting to watch because his dream was always to be in newspapers since he was a kid. And we went to the National Cartoonist Society dinner, which was like the Oscars for, it was just like unbelievable in the room, the Reuben Awards and it's all the cartoons, all the cartoonists that you grew up reading their cartoons. And we were at a table with a bunch of syndicated cartoonists and Dave's like, oh my God, tell me what it's like. What, it's, what is it like to be syndicated? And what's, and they're like, oh, we make like $6,000 a year. We all have to have like other jobs. Like you don't make any money. He's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh yeah. There's like no money in this. And so he realized very quickly, and, and syndicates take 50%, percent five zero. 0 uh, And so he realized really quickly, oh, if I want to make my art my livelihood, I have to shift. And then I saw him shift, and he owns every, he, he, we publish his books, we publish two books a year, he owns all of his stuff. And so that was also a really great parallel for me to be on, because I saw this artist who was... Making his own way, finding his own journey, doing all the jobs, and that fell directly in line with sort of what I was doing. So we were sort of learning from one another as well, which was which was helpful.
1: Yeah, and look, there is you know the celebrity showrunner is a thing, and it it wasn't for a long time. There were just these invisible people, and now people know people know their names. So you need to
7: know Shonda and Genji, and Chuck Lord. Everybody knows those people now.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about most likely and uh, how that started. And
7: yes. So most likely. So I had my so my first pilot after One Day at a Time was a pilot about my husband and I that was called uh, History of Them that I sold to CBS with a production commitment. So we got to shoot it and. We had such a good time. I had a great time with CBS, have a great relationship, specifically with Julie Pernworth, who's been like such a consistent supporter of mine. And they, for various reasons, it was during all the less, there was a lot going on and we did not move forward, um, even though it was a really well-received pilot. And at the time we were looking for new homes for it and it was sent to Amazon and Vernon Sanders saw it. And that actually planted the seed for my deal, which is crazy. So it's funny how everything kind of comes together. Um, so then the next season, I wasn't planning on doing a pilot. And Julie was like, we want something from you. Like, just, is, do you have an idea that you'd love to do? And so I really, I, we were in the middle of production. And so I said, Julie, can I pitch it to you on the phone? And I did like a little presentation and like a little slide with all the characters and all that and what it would look like and all of that. But I pitched that to her on the phone and she bought it on the phone. So I went through the process of, of of making it. And then I learned later that they had picked up another show about letters. <laughs> <laughs> Same premise. <laughs> so, it was, you know, it was like, listen, every, I still am amazed that they pay us to write. So I'm deli- I was delighted to get to work on it. I had a great time doing it. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, you always write stuff hoping it gets made, but... Not everybody's stuff gets made. That's part of the, that's part of the journey. So that's what happened with most likely.
1: And these characters, are they, um, based on people, you know, how did you, you know, we're writing this ensemble. Where do you begin in terms of peopling the show?
7: Well, so the, so history of them was largely based on my, me, my husband and our friend group. And so I didn't want to make the same show. I wanted it to be like different. So I had to reach outside of making it super, super personal. So Stella was, is me, right? First generation Latina girl. And then what I thought would be interesting was putting her opposite a third generation Latino boy. So that's where the Mateo character came from is I wanted somebody who grew up here, whose parents had weren't struggling Latinos that we see all the time on TV but we're like third-gen Latinos who are who do pretty well, who have been in the country a long time, have you know, um, have thriving businesses, and so to see the there would have been a lot of really interesting. They're both Latinos, but they couldn't be more different. Latinos, um, which I thought would have been a really interesting uh, dynamic to see, and then I wanted to have a bi character because I, w- I had done a panel recently uh, at, at that time where I heard about the bi the the misrepresentation of the bi community and how they wanted to be more seen and i started understanding from a cis female point straight point of view i had a really great conversation with with uh bi friends of mine where i was like i'm gonna make mistakes can we have a conversation because i want to wrap my brain around this but i'm sure i'm going to say offensive things accidentally do i have permission and it was great it was great to sit down and and I had to retrain my brain because for me, you know, I, I'll be frank. I, I had a conversation where I said like, I don't know the difference. Like, cause a lot of bi people I know are married to men Bi women I know are married to men. And so I was like, so if you're a bi person and you're married and you come out, like I want to tell the community I'm bi that a little bit feels to me like saying I'm married to my husband, but I want to have sex with Hedris Right. Like <laughs> how is, is that what it is? Like, what, that's what it feels like to me. I know that's not what it is. So what am I missing? And then it was great to hear from my, from bi friends of mine who they were like, Gloria, it's not that at all. People already assume you want to have sex with yourself, but because everybody wants to have sex with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a, what we need to tell people is bi people can present as straight, but it's visibility that by announcing to the world that you are bi, you are giving visibility to other people that are out there that don't feel seen and so it's a, a question of visibility. You're not saying I'm available for people to have sex with. You're just saying that this is, this is who I am, but this is who, who I've chosen to be. And so it's, I was like, oh, oh, now I get it. Okay, cool. So then I wanted to just have that conversation because I feel like that's a conversation America needs to have. And so I wanted to have a bi-character. So that's kind of how I would fill that out. That's how I filled all of that out is what are the conversations I want to have in the show? how do I want to build bridges to one another through comedy? What, who are interesting characters that I can populate this world with so I can have those conversations.
1: Okay. Um, yeah. It's like how people couldn't really understand Katie Hill. Right. Uh, it's like, we were just sort of baffled with. you know, it's exactly that. Um, and so now that, that, stuff so you're talking about with Stella and Matteo, I feel like it's very subtle in the pilot. Very right? subtle in the pilot. It, was, there, was there more of it? Were you like, what kind of notes were you getting? So you obviously... yeah, you, Yeah, there
7: was. I mean, it's... You have to try... I mean, look, the, the great thing is, if you get an executive who you really like and you can have real conversations with, you can challenge them. And I think what I appreciated was... The executives were like, we really know our audience and we want to get this show on the air, but you have to baby step this agenda. You have to baby step it because we know them enough. I mean, look, that was the case too with when we did uh, the pilot of One Day at a time for Netflix. There's a joke we had where Penelope says, where Alex has was supposed to buy one pair of shoes, but bought six pair of shoes. This is the pilot of One Day at a time. And Penelope in the pilot said, well, that's some Jesus shit right there. Like, you made you made six pairs out of one pair. Well, that's some Jesus shit. Okay, so that was the joke that we shot on the stage. And Netflix came out and they said, hey, you can keep the Jesus shit joke. But know that when families are watching this show and they see shit in the pilot, because we've seen your other episodes, because at that point we had already turned in six other episodes. There's no swearing in any of our episodes. Um... If you do that in the pilot episode, they're going to assume, oh, this is a show where the parents swear, and you're going to lose a million people like that. Now, you can do it if you want. It is your choice. And so it was amazing. And what what we wanted to do with that was Jesus shit, and then she's like, don't, don't say, sh- you know, don't use the Lord's name in vain, don't say shit. So it's like, it's how a parent would swear in real life, how you let it slip sometimes, but then you tell your kids, don't do that, right? Right. We wanted to show that, but it was so fun to see Norman be like, we're going to keep Jesus shit. We're you know, such a fighter, right? Like, right. we're good. I... And I said no no, I said, no, 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 Norman, Norman, I need those million people. <laughs> Norman, <laughs> there's no Latinos. I need the million people. Um, and we had a great conversation after that where at the end it became Jesus Christ, right? We took shit out because it's like, I don't want to lose. I need those people to see the show. I need those people in this living room to have a conversation with his family. So I do appreciate when notes are left to you, but they're giving you the information based on, on what they know about wherever you know, wherever this stuff is going to air. So, um, I knew, I knew really, really based on the pilot I did the year before. Um, I had a joke in history of them where the black character says like, Oh, you know, he said something like, um, oh, dear black baby Jesus, right? He said something like, dear black baby Jesus. And I couldn't say that. And they said, you can do that, dear black baby Jesus joke, but know that a lot of people watching the show are going to be upset about that. And I'm like, but Jesus was was black, but okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus wasn't what? You know nobody in the Bible was white, right? <laughs> do people not know that? Okay. Um, guess they're not ready to hear that. Guess they're not ready to hear that. Uh, so it, it was It was again like, oh, when you're trying to break through dominant culture, how do you do it in a way that will be effective? And I appreciate that for some people, they're like, I don't care, and I'm just going to be true about my voice, and I'm just going to put it out there. But for me, I am trying to find balance. I'm trying to find the balance between not giving up on the important stuff while still inviting people in. And ultimately that's what I learned about the Schneider character is that the Schneider character playing the well-meaning dumb white guy was inviting people who didn't understand this community into the living room and they could see themselves through him. And that was kind of their way in. So again, I don't want to say that like, we have to have some white character experience everything in order for people to understand shows about people of color. But I think accidentally that's what we ran into with one day at a time and it became super effective. So it's certainly something that I think about when I'm, depending on what I'm trying to talk about and depending on what the show is, what the purpose of the show is supposed to be. I always think about intention. Do you think about, like, I always think about the people on the other side of the box that are receiving the information. Yeah. The intention based on what ends up happening is not always, it's not always what happens. But when the intention is very clear and I really try to earnestly write to that, I find that a lot of times it does, it is what kind of comes through.
1: Yeah. And look, you, you're looking at the long game, right? You want to, you, where, when do you fight those battles and do you just try and get to the point where the show's successful enough and then you have the clout to then fight for, for those things, but you fight the battles too early and it's just like, okay, you won, but what was the point? You never got the chance. And when you are talking about certainly a show on CBS, which is arguably the network that has lagged behind the most when it comes to these things, but you, you, the audience isn't there yet. Right. So, you know, Blackish still has to have that same thing. They still have to have that conference room of the dumb white guys, you know. And so you've got... On HBO, you can have I May Destroy You, which is just like light years ahead and just like totally. we don't care. And no one, you know, you guys gotta catch up, up. up.
7: You gotta catch up, guys. You gotta
1: catch up. Yep. And and I feel like as you know, hopefully evolves like there's stuff I'm like, I am catching up. This show is, you know, I may destroy you is like, I am catching up to this. Um, but you can't do that. You're doing a show, you know, on CBS or even Netflix at the at the time, you know, we were looking to do a mainstream family comedy. You can't go there. It's just practical. And I understand, you know, Norman is the guy who fought the hardest and won the most battles. And, you know, so of course that's his instincts. But it seems like... It's
7: so great. I love when he's like doubling done with, with
1: Norman. <laughs> Has what? he... Are there other um, just gems from Norman that, that he's taught you that... I don't know. He uh,
7: is he is so wonderful because there was an episode Mike and I wrote in season one, um, the snowman's tale. And it's a, it's, it's told out of order. So every season we do one or two episodes that are not within the norm of the, of the multi, depending on what the story is, right. You you try to, you you try to tell the story in the best way. The form has to adjust sometimes a little bit. Uh, and so that was one where we were going back and forth in time. It was like flashbacks to a night. And so Norman watched it and he was like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get what we're watching. I don't understand. I think this is not a good idea. And we were like, you have to trust us. You have. To. And I had literally been on How I Met Your Mother where I was like, this is all we did for three seasons. What was this out of order thing? I I know it's weird in a table read and I know it's weird when you're walking set to set and it's like two lines, and then you have to walk back over to the main <laughs> yeah. I get how you're like, what's happening? And then when we cut it together, he came to us and he was like, "I can still even this. I get to experience at this age. I was wrong, you know." Like, and his ability to just uh, trust and to and to admit when something comes together in a way that he didn't e- expect, he's almost delighted to be wrong. You know, he's almost like tickled. That that something was made in a way that he didn't anticipate, and so that for me it's like he he really embodied. He's so joyful on show night. He loves the theater of it. He loves the whole process and the you know he would whisper to us like this is fucking terrific. You know it's just <laughs> amazing to have that whisper that to you on a show night with the audience. There's nothing like a show night that that I miss so much, and I. You know, even if we are able to go back in whatever, February, April, I don't know that. You're not going
1: to have a live audience. Yeah.
7: No. And that was just such a special, special thing.
1: No, it is. It's the great. I always tell people, I'm just like, you, you may have your issues with the, you know, multicam and you can call it corny, but but there is nothing more fun in show business than show night of a multicam. It's just the so greatest. Fun. So uh. fun. Yeah. Um, you're so lucky to get to work with him. I mean, that generation, you know, having just lost Carl Reiner and it's just that, that generation of guys who served in World War II and had that perspective and are just these absolute comic geniuses that you've gotten to work that closely with him. I mean, what oh, a gift.
7: Such a gift. Such a gift. So grateful.
1: And he's doing okay?
7: He's doing good. Yeah, he's doing good. He was, I mean, they had, uh, his doctors had quarantined him very early. He couldn't be in a room with more than ten people, like in February. So uh, he's—I think he—you know—Norman is a doer. He's not a—he has a beautiful fifty-five million-dollar mansion in Bel Air, but he doesn't or in uh, in Brentwood, Brentwood. But he does not—he likes to go do stuff. So this is driving him crazy. Like the last time I talked to him, it was like, "How you doing?" He's like, "I'm on my way over." I'm like, <laughs> he's like dying to get out of there.
1: Meanwhile, I've been to that house and holy Oh crap, my God,
7: it's... right? Just one of, those, one of those paintings is more expensive than my house. Yeah, the,
1: the, the parking lot you pass by on the way to the house, it's just like, well, that's like a full parking lot that you have.
7: That is a full parking lot.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> by the way,
7: two houses before... <laughs>
1: eh,
7: crazy.
1: It's crazy. Well, gosh, I hope you get to make some, some more uh, episodes soon. Um, and I'm so excited for the movie and all the things that are going to come on Amazon. And it was so much fun to get to read this with this amazing cast that you put together single-handedly. It was great, too, because Ben and I didn't have to do anything. And this (laughs) was your cast. Were these the people in those pictures when you showed June? Yeah.
7: Yeah. So it was really so fun to just have everybody come on and say yes and be so game. It was so fun to hear.
1: I mean, they were all people, I mean, I knew most of, you know, their work, most of them, but, you know, I'd never met them. And just a great group, just a nice, talented group of actors that you put together. Um, And you could tell they, even on Zoom, like there's chemistry among all of them. And, you know, I can only imagine if we had gotten to do it on a stage in a comedy club and just really seeing all of that chemistry they had. But um, but it was great. So thank you for putting together that cast and letting thank us you. Thanks read for this putting title. Out.
7: It was so fun.
1: It was. And it was great to talk to you.
7: Nice talking to you too.
1: All right, stay well. Thank you. Bye, Gloria. Bye. And that is our show for this time. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-host Ben Blacker and our associate producer Noah Findling. Uh, follow us on social media. Find out when the next read's going to be. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram at Dead Pilots Society. We're on that other thing, uh, but I'm just not talking about that lately. All right. Everyone stay safe out there. Keep finding ways to help someone be nice to yourself. Wear a mask. Eventually, we will get through this. Till next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you so much for listening.